are live. The Hunt for Success number 17 or 18. I can't remember, but we're back. We took a uh, about a two-month hiatus um, to kind of do some tweaking, and, uh, and we're back. Um, thanks for everybody who's given us feedback and kind of helped us uh, uh, stay motivated and, and uh, uh, give us some good feedback on how to improve the podcast. Today we got Joe Roeder from Red's Fly Shop. Uh, it's weird how YouTube can make an average person kind of a celebrity in some people's eyes. <laughs> an average person, yeah. Uh, I joke all the time, people. Um, yeah, you, <laughs> kids these days now want to be YouTube stars. It used to be like, I want to be a pro sports player. I want to be, you know, et cetera, on TV. Now they're like, I want my own YouTube channel. Like, yeah. And guess what, kids? All you need is a cell phone and an internet connection. <laughs> Those are the only prerequisites. Uh, <laughs> So, <clears throat> I've uh, been fly fishing for about 10 to 15 years, somewhere in there. And uh, I love going to Yakima and fishing uh, the Yakima River, but... Stay on the mic there. Your, uh, your, your blog and your YouTube channel really impacted me from a fly fishing standpoint. I, I really started to learn uh, how to fly fish from YouTube, which is another great thing. I mean, we live in a totally different world, right, where... If we, if I grew up in the '70s, I want to have that access, and hopefully, I know some good fly fishermen. But as I started watching your channel for a couple of years, my reason for watching it changed. I became almost infatuated with your lifestyle and jealous. Here I am sitting in an office in my suit, uh, doing paperwork, and uh, here's this uh, guy. Uh, sometimes I would call you names like, "What a jerk." <laughs> uh, your office is on the Yakima River. And uh, even we were watching one of your videos before we started the podcast, before he got here. And I'm like, what a jerk. Look at him you know, with that background and being out on the river and fishing the, the best rods and getting to meet cool people. So uh, I almost became jealous to a point. And <laughs> we do that. We all do that, right? The grass is always greener and you see yeah. other lifestyles. But um, I told you I don't have a list of questions, but I do have one question to kind of get us going here is uh, uh, – what does success mean to you? Yeah, it's a, obviously a multi-layered question, but uh, you know, success would be, you know, measured in so many different ways. Um, you know, you have your family success. You know, seeing your kids, you know, prosper and be healthy and become, um, you know, g- good citizens and good people and make good choices, and knowing that you're going to launch them in the right direction. You have business success, which uh, I'm going to kind of speak more to in this podcast, but business success is one that's going to provide you stability and freedom uh, for me. Uh, I didn't sign up for this job to make a gazillion dollars, um, but through hard work and some really good decisions and a lot of blessings along the way, I've been able to make a pretty good living doing exactly what I want to do with the freedom to be able to take, you know, do other ventures like hunting or family vacations and things like that, where I don't feel like I'm a slave to the job. Uh, So success for me is definitely that freedom and stability. Um, it sounds like you're right where you want to be in life, where you're living life in a very intentional way, where it's very easy to fall in and live life accidentally, right? Um, Where you end up at a a, a nine to five job behind a, in a cubicle and you are sitting there watching videos of other people living the life they (laughs) want to. Um, So what's it like being a guide? Uh, out on the Yakima River because obviously we know lots of guides um, and you get different stories of I know guides that don't like their job 
right? Yeah, they shouldn't be guides. I mean, just number one, there's people who should be guides. They were born to be guides. I've been told uh, I should be a guide. And I'm going to share a story with you. Okay. So stories are good. Yeah. I'm going to share a story with you because this is a very, it was a divine intervention. That's the only way I can tell you this. So uh, I started guiding when I was in college. And if you would have told me when I was 16 or 17 years old, hey, you're going to be able to be a professional guide and outfitter. I would have thought my odds of being a professional basketball player at a generous five foot ten <laughs> were equally as good as being a pro guide. And I would have thought, now nah, you're crazy. So same same happened in college. I got to college and loved fly fishing. It was just you know just a nut. And where'd you go to school at? Central Washington University. Go Wildcats. <laughs> uh, most people don't even know they're the Wildcats. <laughs> but. Uh, Went to school at Central and uh, ended up loving fly fishing, you know, started to adapt to big western river style fly fishing on the Yakima. Never thought I would be a guide. I got to know some guides and, you know, was obviously envious of their job because guides from a work hard, play hard standpoint as a young person, say somebody who's 20 years old, you get to go roll a boat for a guide trip that day, get a little tip at the end of the day. That's great money at that age. And I was really envious of the guides, but I never thought I would have that skill because I didn't grow up as a fly fisherman. Uh, my dad was not a fly fisherman. He's the furthest thing from, a, from fly fishing. <laughs> we thought it was just a novelty people did to look cool. Uh, so I didn't grow up with any type of formal training or anything like that. Got to college, ran with it, just went crazy. Um, sleep in my car type passion for fly fishing. Well, never thought I'd be a guide. Couldn't afford my own boat. Boats would be about $5,000 just to kind of get started. Was a broke loggers kid. No way I was getting a boat. I barely even had a, I drove a Suzuki Samurai at the time. You know, a fake Jeep, <laughs> counterfeit Jeep. So I didn't even have a car I could tow anything with, let alone a boat. Well, I went down to go fishing one evening at a park in Ellensburg. And drove down there. There was about a half an hour daylight left. I was going to hit the caddis hatch, just fishing on foot by myself. There was an older guy and lady down there trying to take their boat out, their drift boat. And the current was incredibly swift right there. The river runs really high uh, along that shoreline. And he was struggling to get this boat on the trailer. And, and part of me was afraid that they were going to lose the boat downstream. And part of me wanted to just go fishing and kind of ignore it. But I was like, you know, they really need some help. Went down and uh, helped him secure the boat, get it on the trailer so it didn't get swept away. His, his gal was there with him, and she you know, wasn't able to get in the current and help muscle the boat on the trailer because it was pretty sketchy. So I go down and help the guy, and naturally a conversation ensues you know, you know, post-aid. And uh, so I you know, feel kind of obligated to sit there and chat with this guy, but there was something really neat about the guy, so I missed all of my evening fishing helping this guy out. And uh, the conversation comes around to like, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? And I was like, well, I'm going to go fly fish at some lakes. And remind you, I've never guided. I've never done any type of, I've barely even rowed a boat on the river. He says, well, hey, you want to go fishing with us tomorrow? And here I am looking at it, you know, guy and a lady in their 60s. I'm like 20 years old. I'm like, not really. They just want me to row the boat for them. They just want me to row the boat for them. And because I was asking him some questions and I had a little bit more knowledge than he did, but wasn't super knowledgeable. And uh, he goes, well, you want to go? And I'm like, how many 20-year-old kids in college are going to go fishing with a couple of old people you just met? But I'm like, I get to get in a boat and, like, float the river? I'm like, okay, I'm in. You know, like, I'm that, like, really want to be floating the river and at least acting or pretending to be a guide. So I take them out on the river the next day. I say, okay, meet me at such and such at, you know, a certain time. You know, not a paid guide trip or anything like that. 
I just meet up with him. We're going fishing, and I just kind of assume role as guide and coordinator. And I'm telling you guys, the stars aligned fishing-wise that day. Like, every star in the galaxy aligned for us. Like, we were catching fish on caddis dry flies, you know. For those that aren't fly fishermen, it's like a very coveted form of catching fish. Very exciting where you can see the fish, you know, sipping bugs on the surface. Much more like hunting with a fly. We were getting two and three fish on at a time in places that I have never seen fish feed since then. Like, never. Like, the, it, was, it was crazy fishing that day. Never seen anything like it since, hardly. And partway through the day, he goes, Joe, really awkward timing. Like, Joe, what's your last name? You know, I'm like, Greenland and a fish. I'm like, this is kind of, <laughs> kind of awkward. <laughs> I go, Rotor. And he goes, I'm keep fighting the fish. He's like, well, I see you take good care of stuff. You know, you appear to be very responsible. And I realize I just met you. But, oh, and by the way, he was on his way home to Sandpoint, Idaho, with this boat from Portland. Okay. He was driving home, first float with the boat. First time he'd ever, well, this was the second. The first one is when I helped him get it out. Yeah. So, so he's well. on his way home with a brand new boat, not a scratch in it. And he says, well, how about I just leave you my boat so that you can pursue the idea of being a guide? Like wow. just basically gave me this boat on a non-conditional long-term loan. And did you talk to him saying that I kind of have an ambition to be a guide or did he no. just recognize that? No, he just recognized it. And he's like, you just need to be a guide. And uh, so he, he bring, so we go out fishing throughout the day. And part of me is like, you know, forgive me for being skeptical, but I'm like, is this boat stolen or something? Because like, it's brand new. <laughs> he's randomly goes fishing. And now he's like giving me this boat. So it gets even worse. Like his extension of faith was incredible because I lived in an apartment building, you know, at Central. So he brings it to my apartment, puts it in the parking lot at the apartment. Mind you, I have a Suzuki Samurai. It, it's not doing anything. <laughs> that thing would flip over backwards with the tongue weight on it. And uh, he, he drops it in my apartment parking lot and even goes by as a chain so he can chain it to the light pole. And his, he extended that much trust wow. to me with his boat. And... Uh, so then uh, at that point, I'm like, woohoo, you know, I got to get a truck to tow this thing with. So I borrowed my dad's 76 Ford uh, pickup, you know, and uh, Big Red. And uh, <laughs> so I got Big Red over to college with me, which had a top safe speed of about 45 miles an hour. It was our wood truck. And uh, started, started running the river in this, this boat. It was, a, of all things, a North River drift boat. They don't make a lot of drift boats, but it was a North River drift boat, yeah, aluminum. What did your parents? What did your parents say? Was your dad like, "What do you mean somebody just left you a boat?" Yeah, they're like, they're really confused. They're like, "Yeah, he went to college. He's falling off the deep end." You know, like, they, I mean, it just sounded like an unbelievable story. My my girlfriend is now my wife at the time. Was like, she's very cautious, and she's like, "You really need to call like state patrol or something." And I'm like, I called state patrol, and state patrol is like very confused on the whole story. Like, so he gave you this boat, just met him. And they're like, well, we have no record of any boat being stolen. So they're like, I'm good. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> so did your parents think you were wasting your time with all this fishing and taking a truck and going out in the river? And were they worried about how's this impacting your school? And no, my parents did a lot of free range parenting for me. Um, you know, and I'll get into you know as we go on, I'll talk about raising my own kids because my yeah. own kids are at kind of the turning point nearing teenage years and such. But a lot of free-range parenting, uh, doing my own laundry, a lot of very distant remote parenting. No, they, they had really no input at all. Um, you know, they, they weren't report card parents. You know, they looked at my report card. If I had, you know, a low grade, it was like, hey, get it up. And I made honor roll, you know, all through high school and college. I would say I was a capable student. But no, no, no input at all there. But as I went on, uh, eventually I 
you know, became my transition kind of worked like this was, you know, so I, I was very passionate about guiding and, you know, met this person who dramatically impacted my life. I would call him in the short term that I, I knew that man, he, I would call him a mentor because of his extension of faith changed my life. And if I could do that for other young people along the way and impact their lives with just a really a small gesture, um, it didn't cost him anything. But from there, I went to forest firefighting. And uh, so got into forest firefighting on a hell attack crew, got to fly around in a Huey, attack fires, fall trees. I was, grew up in a logging community, so I knew how to run a chainsaw pretty well. So I got a pretty good job on this hell attack crew, being you know, part-time you know, radio operator, part-time Sawyer, got to fall trees, got to do a lot of real good initial attack work. But at the end of my second summer from fighting fires, we had a really good fire season. And uh, the end of the, like, August rolled around, and I bought my first fiberglass drift boat with a credit card and an overtime check. And that's where I catapulted into guiding as I went forward. It was really, uh, it was a big jump. Um, you you said age. something I want to touch on um, about having a mentor and then realizing with your kids that you need to be that mentor for other people. Did you realize that at the time? Oh, gosh, no. No, I mean, I, when you're at that age, you don't re I mean... I think a lot of young people are expectant. You know, they expect this next generation to give them a hand up all the time. And uh, it's not necessarily the case. There is no entitlement, you know. Um, so at the time, no, I was not cognizant of that. It was, you know, it's all these years later, I realized what a huge impact that person had on me. Uh, and not only, the, you know, just gifting me, like, this boat, right? Like, I mean, because I had the boat for six months. And I, I mean, I almost saw that guy three times during six months. Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't see him. It was just, it was not just the, the loan of the boat, but the fact that somebody would trust and believe in me yeah. and go, that's really cool that somebody, you know, obviously cares that much about a person they've never met. And we have all sorts of opportunities in life like that when we encounter other people in situations that we can certainly do it. And it impacted my life and it's still impacting my life because I'm attempting to do that at every given opportunity for young people now. Because when it comes to hunting and fishing, I think that's one of the things I enjoy the most is the people that are older than me, a generation or two older than me that have taken the time to take me out fishing or introduce me to hunting or pheasant hunting or how to train a bird dog. And as I'm getting older and have a kid and those people are starting to pass and get older and, and aren't able to go do those things, I'm really realizing how important it is to pass that, to pay that forward and get involved with youth and get your kids out and give back as much as you can. And it's weird not knowing that during the time, like in your 20s, and then as they get start to get older and you start to get their wisdom a little bit and realize how special that was that they took the time to do that with you and how it really is protecting what we all enjoy to do, but at the same time making us better people. Yeah. I do got another story about a mentor who yeah. had a big impact on me and I didn't realize at the time. So uh, we had a, you know, the, the days of little gun shops are kind of over, unfortunately, you know, with just firearms regulation and et cetera. It just seems, and some of this is speculation, and in, in no way am I going towards a gun control discussion on this, but it just seems like gun shops have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, and there's a lot more remote processing of guns, and, you know, the Internet's changed things. But when I was a kid, and same for you guys, there was a lot of little gun shops. You know, you had the little local gunsmith, and uh, he could fix stuff. He knew about old guns. He knew the history of certain models. And I went to this gun shop almost every day after school. I would, when I didn't have sports practice, I'd walk up to 
uh, Gil's gun shop. Gil was his name, Gil Hanawalt. And uh, I would go in there all the time. And finally, I think he just maybe wanted to keep me busy because I would come in there and just pepper, pepper him with thousands of questions. And, uh, and I'd get to meet all the, you know, all the hill folk that would come to the gun shop as well. <laughs> so I got to be a fly on the wall of there a lot and listen to these old timers tell stories. And they probably loved bending my ear, and I loved listening to their stories. But uh, Gil finally, I think, wanted to keep me busy, so he offered to – I had this uh, twenty two, a Savage um, – I can't remember the model, but Savage Bolt Action twenty two that was my great-grandfather's and just fantastic gun back when guns were extremely high-quality steel, yeah. classic stocks, metal butt plates. I mean, just really high-quality guns. And uh, it was just – it was a it was a ranch gun, and it had been trashed. And uh, – Gil offered to help me refinish the stock on it. So it took about a month, and he had me sand it down by hand. Every single day I'd show up, and we'd do, you know, another, you know, we'd start with, like, you know, 80 grit and work down to, like, 600 grit, finally steel wool, and then finally just, like, a, uh, uh, an emery cloth, you know, eventually. And uh, he goes, yeah, by the time you're done with that, it's going to shine, even though you haven't put a drop of oil on it. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Whatever, old man. Crazy. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it took about a month. But he uh, he walked me through every single step of refinishing that stock. Never charged me a dime, you know, nothing. He was just like, hey, you're going to be here. You know, put yourself to work refinishing your gun. And uh, that was another kind of life-changing, I would say, in reflection, life-changing deal where you learn how to work hard. Uh, you learn how to put some time in. You learn how to be patient. And you learn all those skills that, you know, we – I mean, today we don't even have wood gun stocks hardly, but, um, you know, so many kids are going to miss out on that unless somebody takes an exception to them, you know, like he did with me. And again, that's just, you know, I'm very fortunate to have had that. Oh, that, that's a great story. I think that Ryan and I and a lot of people that, that hunt and fish have a lot of stories like that. And like I said, it's that, that mentorship. Now that we're getting older, you really realize how important it was and how important, um, some of the, uh, nonprofit, organizations are like pheasants forever um, ducks unlimited rocky mountain elk sci um, how important they are and and uh, how far that money goes not only on the land conservation but on um, youth youth hunts and youth education Uh, i was involved with pheasants forever for uh, a number of years um, our local chapter here and uh, we did a lot with habitat management and purchasing a land and uh, public making it public land and uh, but the part I enjoyed the most was our annual youth hunt. And you would see kids come in fresh out of hunter's education, uh, barely can lift up their gun, or the kids that weren't able to hunt yet would come out and help us release the pheasants be- the morning of the hunt. Mm-hmm. And uh, you watch them at 12, 13, 14 start to learn to hunt. And a lot of their, there was a lot of single parents or a lot of parents that weren't into hunting that would bring their kids. And that four or five year period from 14 to 18 goes by quick. Mm-hmm. And then you'll be out hunting and you'll see one of those kids show up uh, at 18 years old with their truck, with their bird dog and a shotgun and come out and go hunting for a few hours. And uh, the direction that their life is going because they were introduced to an organization like Pheasants Forever at such a young age could be completely different than if they would have never I had that opportunity. Oh, no, no, absolutely. And the amount of responsibility to see an 18-year-old in today's age get out of a truck with a bird dog and a shotgun. Yep. I mean, it's it's something that we're losing quickly. Yeah, no, definitely letting kids handle firearms at a young age and you know, eliminating a lot of curiosity factors important. Uh, you know, we're, guns aren't a big mystery. Kids know how to operate them, and it's not 
taboo to handle them. They don't got to do it in secret. Uh, I actually teach hunter's education. So I'm a certified hunter's education oh, cool. instructor. And uh, I'm just, you know, my business has gotten to the point where it, it doesn't run itself. It's got its challenges. But we've gotten to the, our point or to the point in our outfitting company and our business that, you know, I've been at Reds. Uh, I can't remember how many years I've been a partner, but I've been at Reds about 12 years now. And uh, one of our goals, I mean, it wasn't a spoken goal, but one of our goals has always been to be able to get our point, our business to the point where it's stable, that we can start to do things like teach hunters education and a youth pheasant hunt with pheasants forever, which we did last year, actually. Uh, we did our first annual youth pheasant hunt. Did you do it at, at your guys' preserve? At our preserve, yeah, at, our, at the Mount Baldy Hunting Preserve. We had 33 kids, I think it was, actually come out on, uh, most of them were coming out for their first pheasant hunt. And uh, we partnered with them, and uh, Pheasants Forever was, was a co-sponsor with it, worked with them, it was great. But part of the reason I got in Hunter's Ed uh, in teaching it was, one, I want to give back. It's, it's an opportunity for me to serve, you know, I try to serve my community uh, through my church in other ways, but I'll be honest with you, I uh, like going down and visiting with old people. That's great. My my heart isn't as passionate there, like <laughs> as it is in doing something like teaching hunters ed and working with kids. I have different talents, and and I think God tries to get you to use your talents in very specific areas. For me, hunters ed, I love teaching hunters ed, and I think the students like it too. <laughs> so I remember my hunters ed class. I had two instructors. I had. Uh, Old man Snyder, God bless him, but old man Snyder was not the most uh, inspirational fella. <laughs> but there was another guy named Jim Lane who was my teacher. And Jim wouldn't know me today, but I still remember him because he was younger. He was enthusiastic. And I still remember the, the class, and it was a traditional class, no internet involved. You know, it wasn't even a thing then. But I remember old man Snyder would just say, you don't do this. You don't do that. You can't do this. Oh, don't do that. That's just dumb. You know, and the younger instructor was like, hey, you can do this. You know, you can, you can hunt here. When you learn these skills, you know, and you master these regulations and these rules, then think about all the amazing stuff you can go do. And it was like a, a do and a don't, you know, and I just remember him being really positive and really encouraging in that way. And that's part of what inspired me to become a hunter's ed instructor and start to get uh, more involved in that is being able to reach out to these youth and be able to go, you know, hold up a book of pam or regulations. And some people see it as a rule book, and I see it as an opportunity book. And yeah. all the things that you can learn and, and know inside that pamphlet, the more you know the rules, the more success you're going to have. In fact, post-Super Bowl, Tom Brady, who knows the rule book better than anybody in the NFL? Probably Tom Brady, who complains the most, mm -hmm. Tom Brady. But <laughs> that works out to his advantage a lot in being an expert on the rules. And people always accuse him of being a lot complainer. And I'm like, I'll bet you half the time he's right. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I think that knowing the rule book inside and out can give you some advantages in just knowing what seasons overlap and what opportunities are there, what units are there. Absolutely. Well, I, I, not to interrupt you, but I really like that analogy because Tom Brady also has an impact, impact on the rules of the game because mm -hmm. the rules change every year, right? So yeah. because he's so knowledgeable on it and so vocal about it, he, I guarantee you has a big influence on the rules, just like the hunting pamphlet. Once you get to a certain age and you have so much experience, you realize that you can be an active political, on the political side and influence the regulations and the seasons and the limits and all of that. If you know the rules, yeah. yeah. Uh, love or hate Tom Brady, um, but the kids can all relate to that because they know he's a 
complainer. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we teach hunters ed there. Uh, and then the youth hunt we will do again. We haven't set the date, but it'll be sometime around the end of September, early October. And we'll, we're going to run back another youth hunt. I mean, last year was just, it was amazing. And we, we have the resources at our resort, our lodge, and just the company that we are with the visibility that we have to be able to recruit good turnouts for like hunters ed classes. Uh, we do a lot of free stuff. Um, you know, I, I will, uh, unabashedly campaign for this event we have coming up, uh, the Reds Rendezvous 9, uh, just since we're talking about outreach and such. Ninth year in a row we're doing this. Uh, it's a free event to the public, lots of kids stuff, a big outreach towards women and getting the family, uh, and not women make up a much smaller component of the sporting population, and they probably always will. I just don't think women, if you have 100 women, you know, out of 100, not as many women gravitate towards hunting and shooting as men. It's mm -hmm. just a biological fact. But we want to invite all women to come and get schooled up, get learned, uh, or learn the skills in the sport of both wing shooting and fly fishing, and give them every opportunity to get in it. Because even if they don't stick with it and aren't as passionate as maybe their husband counterparts or boyfriend counterparts, brothers, dads, whatever, at least they're going to be able to participate. They're going to have the knowledge of it, and we're going to give them the opportunity to hand up to jump into something like wing shooting. And what we're seeing is a lot of women coming and taking our classes and events that their husband's not even involved, or maybe they're single, and they're, it's a girl's weekend or a girl's trip, and they're coming out, and they're learning how to shoot, and they're learning how to do stuff, especially with uh, people's awareness on kind of sourcing your own meat and um, you know eating organically and eating clean and eating healthy. It seems like there's... It's really piqued a lot of people's interest in what what would it be like to source my own food and harvest my own food so at that event we're doing a women's cast and blast outreach that is enormous i mean i don't know of anything that's ever been done like it it's 100 percent free the women have to rsvp online uh it's the weekend of april 20th through the 22nd and they can sign up online for a particular time slot and they're going to get ammunition included shotgun included professional instruction and it's all girls. They don't get their dad or husband, uh, you know, peeking over their shoulder, critiquing them. They just go and shoot with a pro. They're going to come back, walking the walk, talking the talk, and they are being warmly invited to start to participate in the sport of wing shooting, followed by fly casting lessons. Yeah. So, uh, and then we do some kids stuff too. But the women outreach, really, if we can get mom there, it makes it a lot more accessible to start getting kids and multi, you know, some multi-generation participation in a lot of the things that we do. That's I think awesome. that's excellent. Where uh, where can they go to, to register online for that? So if they go to redsflyshop.com and click on upcoming events. All right. I'm just going to go to the screen capture here really quick. So here we are at Red's Fly Shop. And uh, upcoming events there at the top, just right of center. Oops. There you go. Yeah, let's look at this. And, and for anybody watching, right um, we'll just show you how to RSVP because this is going to be a it's the ninth year in a row it's really a great event go ahead and scroll down and you'll see a little summary of the women's uh cast and blast combination lessons um you just scroll just right past it there oh, right, there. right there and uh they can rsvp right there, there we um go. super easy just takes a moment but we need to know how many people are coming for each time slot and that's a that's a picture of our sporting place course there we have so do you a, have a lot of female instructors there too uh, we don't. Um, we, we do get guest female instructors from time to time, but uh, no, our instructors are male. Um, if we get women's shooting instructors, we'd love to be able to utilize them, but um, currently in our company, uh, we don't have women's shooting instructors. Perfect. All right. Well, and I think that that's really what separates Reds from a lot of the other outfitters. <clears throat> and you mentioned this yesterday in your demonstration at the Sportsman Show about how 
having more educated fishermen and providing that knowledge will end up in more business for reds, right? <laughs> Secret business model, yeah. right? <laughs> Teach you how to catch lots of big trout and you're more likely to come back and buy some stuff. <laughs> well, and it's a good separator, right? Uh, we apply that same, um, that same theory in our business where you slow down a little bit, take time to pe- teach people about what they're doing and you get more loyal. And the word that I think we use a lot is that trust. You build that trust with somebody where if I'm planning a summer Eastern Washington, Central Washington fishing trip, I always go to Reds. Mm-hmm. Um, one, it's an amazing lodge, and I want to hear that story. Uh, but two, it's the people you meet, the education, the guides. Um, even when I've gone out, I always bring my own boat, which I'm probably were at where you were when you got that uh, when I'll, you got the loaner boat. I'll tell you about my first float trip at some point here. Well, it, and uh, you did a, a video on um, anchoring your boat. Mm-hmm. And my first trip on the Yakima was the first t- time I drifted a boat by myself. And uh, this was before I watched your video. <laughs> <laughs> and your video uh, was talking about the chain anchors. And yeah. I had a big pyramid anchor and put the boat in, dropped the anchor, got the anchor stuck behind a boulder, didn't know what I was doing, was yanking on that thing, and uh, immediately saw my boat start to uh, the the back of the boat start to go under the water and I just yelled back to the front of the boat my <laughs> friend ran to the front of the boat and we're like okay first of all let's get a knife out <laughs> <laughs> I had a knot tied in the uh, rope so that I didn't lose my anchor which yeah. is stupid <laughs> uh, so I was doing everything wrong right and uh, then I get home and I wa- it was like a week or two later you did that video and so maybe uh, I saw you almost yeah. sink your boat <laughs> <laughs> and it's not a difficult river to float and I'm already making big mistakes but uh let's talk about the lodge a little bit um because the first time i found reds uh we had planned over fourth of july weekend a camping trip my wife and i uh before we had kids on the yakima and uh uh, and then we drove by and i saw this little fly shop and it was tiny right man i wish i could find some photos of it to show people you know like a lot of people don't realize what humble beginnings we had um yeah, just a quick history of the Reds property. Um, formerly, it was at one point it was known as the Lattice Inn. There's like a bar there, a um, little place to eat. Uh, kind of like, uh, oh, what's the place Nerva runs through it? Lolo's. Um, yeah, Lolo's room. Yeah, as some people say it was kind of like kind of like that. You know, it was pretty some pretty rough characters. Um, but later on, it became known as the Riverview Campground. Uh, a lot of RV use, uh, but real rustic. I mean, extremely rustic campground. Um, eventually when I came to know it, it was ran by, uh, Red and Marlene Blankenship. And, uh, that was, uh, it, my whole, my whole history here is, is quite cosmic because the first float I ever did on the Yakima river, uh, wasn't the, when I got the boat that was, I'd been on the river maybe once before or twice before. Uh, I actually rented a raft at Red's far before I was ever even involved in guiding or anything else it was like one of their old catarafts. It was like 90 bucks a day. You had to make a big deposit on the anchor because if you lost <laughs> the anchor, Marlene was going to charge it. But uh, very rustic. It was ran. Uh, the fly shop itself was on the porch of a 1965 single-wide mobile home trailer. So the fly shop itself was on a porch. The flies were locked behind plexiglass, and they would come and get a little key and unlock the plexiglass, slide it over. Tippet was in essentially a medicine cabinet on the wall, and you would, you know, they'd, you need some leader. They'd come unlock the medicine cabinet, fold it open, but it was all outdoors. And that was Red's Fly Shop. And um, as the years went on, 
uh, I became a guide at another outfitter, and Red's continued to run. Uh, it was owned by Red Marlene. Uh, you know, campground, uh, shuttle service was basically just a taxi. You kind of let Marlene know where you're going. She'd come get you in the Subaru. They had some boat rentals, but really they were selling firewood and ice and running campground. Uh, my current partner, uh, Steve Joyce, stumbled upon it in like 2002. And uh, later on, um, Steve really fell in love with it. And Steve has such a cool story. He doesn't get an opportunity to share it uh, nearly as much as, as, as I would like, you know, people to get to know kind of his history better. But he uh, grew up in Billings, Montana. He moved out to Seattle, you know, with his fiance. He was going to climb the corporate ladder and uh, uh, went to work as a salesman. And uh, I, w- I wouldn't say he hated it, but it wasn't really where his heart was. I mean, he was born to be an outfitter. I mean, Steve has such a heart for the outdoors and outfitting and helping people. Uh, he came across Reds. He started to guide a little bit from clients he'd known from his long guide history in Montana on the Yakima River and came across Reds and started scratching his head, just going, this place is really special. Like, just the heart and the history and the location and, and the heritage of this place is really cool. And uh, Steve started to, you know, the wheels started turning. You know how that works. Mm-hmm. And uh, really, uh, you know, a, a beautiful piece of property like that, people had been pursuing Marlene uh, for years in an attempt to buy it. Lots of people wanted to buy it, build a couple of big trophy homes, make it a big equestrian park, you know, a big resort, Ted Turner type ranch, if you will. She could have sold it to a bazillion different people. Um, and she had a stack of business cards she showed him, you know, this tall. And, and when Steve, like, inquired about, like, you know, buying it, like, this is Steve's version. Maybe it's, you know, semi-inaccurate. Maybe the stack was this tall. I don't know. But she's, honey, get in line. <laughs> Here's my stack of realtor cards this, this tall. So Steve got to know her. And, you know, coincidentally, uh, Red had worked as a saddle maker in Shoto, Montana, which is where Steve's wife was from. And they had some neat connections, Steve and Red Marlene, and they really, you know, got to know Steve and and really developed a next-level relationship with him because, I mean, if you've met Steve, you realize he's salt to the earth and he's got a heart of gold, and they recognized that very quickly, very different than anybody else had talked to him. And, you know, quickly learned, you know, uh, Steve's, you know, math major, very good with a calculator, and he's got some good mentors in his life, and he worked for some good outfitters. But, you know, quickly put paper to pencil and realized that an outfitting company is never going to be able to buy a piece of property like that. It just doesn't work like that. So uh, he consulted with his uncle Tony, who is an orthopedic surgeon, but a very you know wise, well-educated business person, also from Montana. They chatted it out and said, you know, without you know some type of real estate interest in this, there's no way we could ever finance this kind of property. I mean, it's just silly. It's a silly idea, you know, mm-hmm. uh, unless we unless we want to be bankrupt in you know five years, uh, we need to involve some type of real estate interest, uh, you know. Coincidentally, they bumped into another uh, guy named Richard, who's another just, I mean, the guys I work with and for, I could go on and on for hours about what good role models and great family guys and just great business people these these folks are. We don't we do not do anything short-term or short-sighted or, or, or halfway. I mean, it's always for the good of the, you know, I would say business, environment, family, and success long-term. Richard, commercial real estate developer, and, uh, you know, avid bird hunter, avid fly fisherman, great dad, had all the great makings of good business partner. Those guys put their heads together and uh, essentially built Canyon River Lodge, which now exists as a fractional ownership lodge. You can stay there by the night uh, as far as just a nightly rental. Um, But most people who want to spend several weeks a year out there fishing, bird hunting, vacationing, sightseeing, all that kind of stuff, 
they end up buying a share of one of the units there. And so that's the way they leverage some finances to be able to buy the property in order for us to get our fly shop business built. Um, it was really important to Red and Marlene that they had a legacy of public use, meaning people need to be able to come to Reds and recreate. And maybe they just want to get advice on where to float and where to go and river raft with their family or bird watch or hike or just get a burger and a beer. Uh, it was important that there was a public service component to anybody that they sold this property to. And, you know, through through being able to develop the lodge and some cabin sites there, we were able to to have Reds exist as a standalone public use business. Uh, and we're not making a killing there, but we're making, you know, a healthy living. We're able to keep our bills paid and raise some kids, which is pretty exciting. Uh, so Reds is able to still service the public. Great heritage there. We're teaching, doing things like teaching Hunter's Ed and kids and all sorts of great stuff that Red and Marlene, you know, would and, and are very proud of. So that's the evolution of it, man. We started, when I started there, we were in, operating in that mobile home, in 1965 mobile home. A lot of rodents had been in there. Uh, I remember being so excited when the shop, uh, Steve, before I came to Reds, had moved the shop indoors, which was pretty sweet. That's when I first went. <laughs> when, I, don't, I didn't go to the, the mobile home, Reds. I you went, went to the tool shed. I went to the tool shed. Okay, let me tell you about the tool shed. <laughs> so <laughs> we, 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 I remember we were inside that mobile home, and it was, it was pretty gnarly, man. It was 1965, or, and it had been not kept up. Uh, I remember being so excited when we got new carpet. We put new carpet in that thing, and we thought we were, like, living in the Ritz. It was, like, brand new. Yeah, like a Berber high, you know, high industrial <laughs> We bought it at Home Depot, and, you know, they glued that stuff down right over the old floor. I mean, it was like, and it was all, you know, it was all cattywampus, you know. There's a bunch of wrinkles in it and stuff because it was, like, a rough floor. Well, the, we operated out of the mobile home, and then I remember when we first started selling waders and thought we were big time. We're like, oh, man, we got Dan Bailey waders. We're outfitting people with Temple Fork rods and Dan Bailey waders, both fine products. But you kind of get what brand, what labels you can when you first start. And uh, I remember being so excited about that. But then we had to move the mobile home when the lodge, you know, development started. You know, they were trying to build the lodge, and the mobile home was in the damn way. So we, they hooked up the mobile home and moved it. Well, it ripped all the skirting and the porch <laughs> and everything else. And so we stacked some pallets up. So people were walking up pallets <laughs> in our fly shop. <laughs> then we had no plumbing, so we had porta potty. That was it. Like, I mean, we had no plumbing for years at Reds. Like, people think, oh, it's a fancy shop. I'm like, we spent many years without even indoor plumbing. Like, <laughs> you know, we are far from uptight. I'll put it that way. So we spent years with, you know, bouncing around to different stores. But the tool shed was a dirt floor. Uh, when we moved into that, we had to move from the mobile home to the tool shed and remodel it. And it had a dirt floor. And I remember being pretty excited. We moved to the tool shed. Uh, because we had indoor plumbing again temporarily, and then we had no indoor plumbing <laughs> shortly after. But we did have a roof that leaked horribly, so we did have water coming in, but it was through the roof. Rainwater. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so we, we had a yeah, kind of tumultuous uh, you know, period of time prior to getting this new shop and restaurant built. Oh, it's a beautiful lodge, um, and uh, it's a great story. Um, kind of similar to a lot of people's success, right? And uh, it wouldn't be so special if you didn't have that. The business didn't have that humble beginnings and that struggle to get to get taken off. Um, so one thing I'm interested to learn a little bit more is uh, <clears throat> you've really taken the guiding thing beyond just guiding, right? And your presence on YouTube and the education you've done and uh, the the fly shop. When you go in there to buy a fly rod, it's a different experience. 
right? The amount of education I get just on gear when I go in there, whether it's one of the younger guides that mm-hmm. is, just enjoys talking about it um, or uh, some of the more seasoned guys that are in there. Um, what's motivating you to take this beyond just guiding on the river and making it a much bigger uh, business from the sense of online and the education and the YouTube channels where a lot of guides aren't doing that? Yeah, well, let's, well, let's touch on YouTube real quick. Um, you know, my YouTube channel's been far more successful than I've ever could have dreamed. I mean, so far beyond what I ever thought I would have done there because my YouTube channel, anybody who knows or has seen it realizes it's not a high, there's not a high production input to it. It's me with a camera or an Android phone or something spontaneously going, you know what, this is a good, useful bit of information. Let me document this, serve it up to the public, and if they like it, great, and hopefully they'll follow and keep watching. But I honestly don't have time to edit. The guiding is, I'm, I love the hard work, but it's hard work. You know, guiding and running a business and making money selling flies and rods and things is, it's a lot more challenging than it looks like on the outside. And I'll touch on all sorts of different business practice and leadership stuff if, if you'd like, yeah. that I think are applicable to any business that somebody's in. But the YouTube thing started with uh, my, kind of my transition from I worked at uh, another outfitter before I worked at Red's. And I got to the point where I was post-college and I was really in that struggle of like, what am I going to do? You know, early life crisis, right? Like post-college, um, what am I going to do for a career? I had a degree in basic geography and I graduated with 180 credits on the dot in three years and two quarters. Wow. So I finished college early, which is, you know, far outside the norm. And I just wanted to be finished. I was paying my own tuition at the time and I needed to get done. And I wish in, in retrospect at certain times I'd wished I'd stayed and got a master's degree or bachelor of science. But uh, for anybody listening who's in school that is going to get into the natural resource management field, you know, be aware that a bachelor of science or a master's degree is worth the investment. Just get that done while you're in school because a bachelor of arts, when it comes to any environmental consulting or uh, you know, habitat mitigation documentation. Um, if you're going to write EPA uh, environmental assessments or anything like that, or habitat conservation plans, you need that that MS or that Bachelor of Science at a minimum. Uh, but I got done with college and uh, worked for another outfitter and kind of worked through my tenure there. Um, I kind of read the writing on the wall. I wasn't going to be a partner. I wasn't going to get bigger within that business. And I kind of had to had my first child at the time and. I was making about maybe 30,000 bucks a year in guide wages, you know, not a lot of money. And uh, newly married, had a kid, and took that leap of faith to go, you know what, I'm going to break out on my own, do my own business. And, uh, you know, coincidentally, I had another, you know, friend who was about that kind of that same, you know, life point. You know, I can't remember if he finished school at the same time or not, but uh, he didn't have any kids at the time. But he was like, you know what, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it independently. And so we ended up partnering up. It wasn't planned at the time we left the other outfitter, but uh, we ended up partnering up for a year and just, you know, as, you know, as God would have it, we blew up. I mean, it was an amazing year. A lot of fly shops in the Puget Sound area got behind us. I'm still grateful to so many people who got behind us and uh, gave us an incredible guide season, just fresh on our own uh, as, as a, a new outfitting company did an extremely great job that first year and uh, we're gaining a lot of momentum in the market and uh, just through hard work, word of mouth, calling every contact that you had, meeting people at the grocery store, giving them a business card. I mean, cold calling people that you heard about liked fly fishing. I mean, it was, I had, 
a, a child at home at a very young age and a college degree that I had to pay off. My wife was still in school, so there was a lot of hustling happening and uh, really taught me a lot about you know, trying to pick up every crumb. There's something to be said for just picking up every lead and every crumb that you have. Well, eventually I wound up at Reds. Uh, you know, Steve, my current, current, man, um, current managing partner there, there's other partners in Reds, but Steve and I you know, are, are partners that work in the business every day. And Steve, Steve announced law, uh, plans to build a lodge. Uh, it was a really good fit. Um, so I went to work at Reds at that time. And uh, at Reds, we really were in a position where we had bills to pay. We had the, the future in mind, and we had to generate enough business to get this, you know, to be able to feed this lodge. And we wanted a new shop, and we wanted to, we had all these dreams. And at that time, YouTube was just getting started. And uh, I remember we had this web developer who worked for us uh, named Umit, uh, UBG Designs. I haven't talked to Umit in a while, but I'm so grateful to Umit. Uh, and I love talking to Umit. And uh, I remember Umit, one statement that he made, and I was trying to take over some of the web development stuff because I'd done some of that in college. And it's funny how the skills you pick up along the way. I worked in a computer lab in college. And some of the skills you pick up, just I would sit through and TA some of the classes. I was on staff there just to help troubleshoot stuff, and I'm not an IT guy, but I learned a lot about web development and a little bit of coding and stuff like that just in, in being around the lab. Well, so I'm trying to take over some of the web development stuff for Reds, and uh, you know, Uma did a great job, but I think Uma was 80 or 100 bucks an hour at the time, and we really couldn't afford to pay Uma to do all the stuff that we wanted. And I remember Uma just telling me, you know, video is the future. And this was in about 2006. And uh, he says, video is the future. That's where everybody's going. And Umit helped me with the first couple of videos, but it really required, uh, you know, a lot of tedious, uh, a lot of tedious things to try to embed video at that time was very complicated. Well, then YouTube came out and uh, they had that embed feature and it became really easy for me to embed my own scripts now. And Umit had said that, and I never forgot it because I knew Umit's, a, you know, literal genius and I mean very successful web designer and he goes video is the future and I go indeed it is Umit let's do it <laughs> so at the time we were really hungry at Reds and I was one of the people that would put you know put themselves out there um, sure you get uh, you get a little hate mail and you get ridiculed if you have god forbid you have an opinion on something right yep. <laughs> and uh, but you get criticism and things like that but a lot of the other guides that i work with just weren't willing to put themselves out there put themselves on video and things where it's like hey i've got a mortgage and kids and i've got student loans to pay and i'm hungry for this and i want i want to see my business succeed to the point where i can secure my future in guiding and that's really where i was at was, it did, was an act of desperation and did you see that nobody else was doing it and see that as an opportunity oh absolutely yeah. because even our competitors uh you know we have some great competitors they keep us jumping out of bed in the morning but the competitors didn't jump on it um partially because they just didn't want to put themselves out there and be subject to scrutiny but when uma told me videos the future i picked up on i said indeed it is let's go for it and i started to doc video document if you go back to like 2007 i used to video almost every day of guiding and put and I would go home and edit it till 10 o'clock at night missed dinner it, you know wasn't playing with my babies probably the way mm -hmm. I should have been because I was very driven to make this business succeed uh, the payoff now is great freedom and flexibility and I have process I've built since built processes and systems to make everything function much more efficiently but getting that that jump start in video and being one of the first people to really get after that 
the momentum really began to build and uh, we started to get a lot more attention. People began to trust us and earning people's trust is huge because anybody nowadays can get, you know, 15 good stock photos. Like, let's just say we're in the, we could even talk, I mean, we're here, we're in the most beautiful taxidermy museum uh, that I've been in, I think. Um, say I want to start a, you know, hunting outfitting company and I've got all my permits. I could go buy 24 stock, stock images from Getty Images of different animals and I could go put up a website, I could write some fancy text, and I could look like a legitimate hunting outfitter on the web tomorrow. Yeah. I, I could make a business that looks so great, yet I've never guided in the Yukon one day. Uh, and that could be true for, for loans. For no money. I mean, For virtually yeah. no money. You know, you get a Squarespace account or something like that. You could say the same thing for cars, loans, tech, optics, whatever you decide you want to sell, whatever services, consulting. But earning people's trust nowadays on the internet, you know, we have Google reviews, we have Yelp, we have that kind of stuff, which helps people filter. But when you hear it from the word of somebody's mouth and you go, you know, I can trust that guy. He might not be perfect, but he's trustworthy. That's really what I would hope that people would get out of the YouTube stuff that I do is that, yeah, we're not perfect. Do our best. Pretty close. Uh, but they can trust us to help them make good purchasing decisions, be it planning a trip to some faraway place in the world. Uh, buying fly rods or flies or whatever that they can trust reds yeah i think that's that's great and uh more and more people are starting to do that but what a great way to separate yourself from everybody else and gain that trust and become recognized uh i was walking around the the sportsman you and i have never met before we're walking around the sportsman show yesterday and uh i heard i heard you doing your demonstration i'm like that sounds like that guy joe from the reds videos and i walk over and sure enough uh, it was you. So, I mean, just being able to be recognized uh, in, a, in a room full of 5,000 people, right? Yeah, I just, and I, again, I just absolutely, you know, love what I do. Um, but, you know, we take that approach. I mean, you know, our business philosophies, uh, you know, are really simple. I mean, it, it, I think it says it on our website, and it sounds kind of corny. They're old-fashioned. Take care of the customer, take care of the fish. Everything else is going to take care of itself. You know, a lot, obviously there's lots of different strategies and nuances, but you take care of the customer and you're going to do just fine. And everything we do, we try to do is very customer oriented, you know, in any media that we do with things. Well, it's very motivating. And it go back to what I started saying where you, I, lo I watch you or you, people watch other people in different industries and are jealous of what they do. Um, and everyone wants to go follow their passion. But passion without that drive and hard work is not going to get you to that level of success that you want. And so just hearing your story about how you decided you wanted a guide and, and the decisions you made and the effort you put in, I mean, and to, to see where you're at now is awesome. Man, Very I'll much. tell you, buying that boat, my first drift boat was a Hyde fiberglass drift boat and bought it used. And uh, because the aluminum boat I had really wasn't guide ready, it, it just didn't fit the profile of what I needed to, to have for paying customers. And uh, I bought my first drift boat literally with a credit card and an overtime check. I mean, I killed it this fire season. And, uh, you know, like in, it was in August, I think. And I got this huge overtime check. And I was like, you know, I got this Discover card. It'll, it'll take like <laughs> 2500 bucks. <laughs> and uh, ended up buying that drift boat. And uh, I'm certainly not encouraging anybody to go buy, you know, invest with a credit card to go. But I was determined to make that happen, and I knew that, you know, as soon as I did, and I was, you know, river ready, that other out, that outfitters would start hiring me for my services. Did you feel like you were taking risks at the time? Yeah, definitely. I was scary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was laying awake at night, figuring out how I'm going to keep my bills paid, and, you know, I left firefighting to jump into guiding, like, 
literally it was a, you know, a one week transition. I mean, I talked to an outfitter and he said, yeah, I can, I can start using you. And he's like, no, and it was no guarantees. I mean, that's in guiding and outfitting, there are no guarantees. And we'll talk about mentoring younger people. I'm fortunate enough to hire a lot of young men in their early twenties. And, uh, you know, there's some, there's some philosophies that I try to impart on them and hopefully they, uh, absorb some of those, but there's no guarantees in guiding. And I had no guarantees, but then I talked to my fire boss and I was like, we got a big, you know, weather cooled off, got a couple of rainstorms. We had a pretty big crew. And I said, Hey, uh, any hard feelings if, you know, I, I try to get out of here next week for the, it was back end of the season. He's like, absolutely not. He's like, you need to go do that. He's like, we're covered and it'll get, you know, other guys some more hours and stuff. So, but it was, uh, yeah, I had no real guarantees of any trips or business or anything like that, but I just took the plunge and, uh, you know, wind up getting fed guide trips because I was a yes guy. And, uh, you know, just back to when I was mentioning, one of the things I enjoy most about my job right now is being able to hire, you know, we hire women too, um, but predominantly people who come apply for us, I mean, out of 10 applications, nine, to ten, nine out of 10 are men. Uh, but these young guys that I get to hire, um, you know, if there's some things I can impart upon them is being a yes guy, you know, always being willing to do any job that you're asked to do, being a yes guy without rolling your eyes, without sighing, you know, all those types of body language, those are things that absolutely drive me nuts as a supervisor, mentor, and, you know, owner of the businesses, you can visibly see in people's faces and attitude whether they're truly, their heart's in it and they're a yes guy. Uh, I don't know if you guys listen to the Jocko podcast at all. We, oh, we do. Yeah. We, okay, we love so Jocko. Jocko has a statement in there, or there's a story, and I have no idea what episode it is, but this is one thing that stuck with me, and he says that what was good in the military for him is, all I've got to do is just what I'm told, and that's it. <laughs> and he's like, and I can be successful. And uh, there's some there's some real strength and truth to that, but uh, I like it when I see when I see those guys that are like, oh yeah, I'll take that. All I got to do is take out the trash. All I got to do is pick up that cardboard or pick that boat up out of the river or, or you know, do whatever it is to do. Uh, we want to see yes guys, you know, willing to make sacrifice, work on their days off, work overtime, not complain when their hours get cut short. You know, if we we don't want to, you know, we would never want to cut anybody's hours, but if we're cutting somebody's hours temporarily, it's because there's no business. I mean, that's a very tough position as a business owner to be in. Uh, but we want to see yes guys. We want to see people with that can-do attitude and people who not only are just there for whatever, uh, to get whatever they can out of the day, and that maybe is, is a paycheck for just some, but taking every single thing you can get out of that job and taking it with you is something I would encourage everybody to do. I look at some of the jobs I've had with firefighting and the militant and structural organization of progress, um, process and protocol. You know, some of the things I learned there and how we can apply that to a business that we have today with a tremendous number of moving parts, be it guiding and classes and raft rentals and shooting and, you know, worldwide outfitting, um, not to mention our huge retail business. I mean, our e-commerce business is the biggest thing that we do. But process and protocol is incredibly important. And the computer lab job that I had and learning just tidbits about web development, enough to just be successful. And as a small business owner, you need to be able to have a broad variety of skills and take care of some of that web development on your own. Um, I worked as a fisheries biologist, you know, for one off season. And, uh, you know, that was when I was newly married. I was a contractor guide at the time. Actually, I was running my own outfitting company. So basically from, you know, November through March, I was very slow on business. And I went and worked as a fisheries biologist, uh, technician, techni assistant to the fisheries biologist, let's say. <laughs> I'm a Dwight, Dwight Schrute. Assistant, assistant to the regional manager. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
if there's any office fans out there, they'll know what I'm talking about. So, but I, I did that, and that was very educational. I took a lot of that back with me and has enriched my outfitting. And uh, I worked as a land surveyor for one off season, which is, was exactly within my wheelhouse of what I studied. Um, you know, I was a cartographer by education, and environmental consulting and land use planning was something that, you know, I envisioned myself being in. And uh, then I went and worked as a land surveyor. But when spring rolled around, <laughs> it was time to go guiding again. Um, but all of those jobs, I would show up to work with those with the intent that I'm going to earn my paycheck, but I'm going to learn every single thing I can because it doesn't cost me anything to do my absolute best every time I show up and take every bit of that knowledge with me. And did I feel underpaid at times at those jobs? Of course I did, because I was putting everything I had into it. But I agreed to work for a certain wage. I showed up. I have a great attitude about whatever it is you're getting out of it. And take every single thing you can with you as far as knowledge, and you're going to be better off for it in the long run. I, I love that. And, and I want to go back uh, and kind of apply that a little bit to your staff um, at Reds. Uh, because f- a lot of people don't fly fish that are probably listening. But... Uh, it's a very intimidating um, activity to get into. And uh, I've been to lots of fly shops and the attitudes really make the difference, right? Where um, you walk in and if you're new to fly fishing, just the vocabulary and knowing what the equipment is and how to use it, you can make somebody feel stupid really easy if you are uh, working at a fly shop, right? And you get get in there, get into some of these fly shops, and it was almost like they didn't want to take the time, and they talked over your head, and they made you feel stupid. Uh, but when I, every time I'd go into Reds, the amount of time they would take and slow down and not make me feel like an idiot and recognize that let's welcome this guy in and give him knowledge, not just sell him something, but explain what it is and how it works and why what the different flexes is and, and take the time to actually help somebody. And then grab a couple of fly rods and go outside and actually cast them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm always looking at things from a personal development standpoint because I'm always trying to get better. And there's been times where I've walked out of Reds and other uh, shops too, but where I walk out of Reds going, man, that's the attitude I need to have with my clients, right? Because, um, you know, Ryan and I do mortgages, which is equally as complicated as fly fishing. And so slowing down and making people not feel like an idiot and welcoming them into the hobby is, is something that I've always walked out of Red's feeling and then wanted to apply that to my business. Um, so not trying to plug Red's, but... Yeah, I have kind of a... And, and we, don't have, we don't have the time to have, like, regular sales trainings. I mean, we operate on a shoestring budget. You know, getting our staff together is expensive, you know, because we have a big team and trying to get... it. We run really long hours, by the way. We run seven days a week, and... Um, Thursday to Sunday, we're open until 8 or 9 p.m., and we open early. So we have a huge staff based on the number of hours that we have to man the shop, and we um, we do rafting and valet service for shuttle service. I call it valet service because it's easy to understand. We're moving a car for you. Um, but getting the staff together for, like, a formal sales training is tough. But um, we try to operate basically on, a like, an, uh, you know, inquire, inspire, prescribe type formula, you know, to where we're – where do you plan to fish? I mean, we don't care if you're fishing bluegills at your uncle Jethro's pond. Um, we just want to know where you fish and what you're actually up to. And if you don't fish, I think the words we actually use is, where do you plan to fish? 
in case somebody doesn't fish at all. I mean, you know, if you say, where do you fish? They're like, well, I don't even fish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> but where do you plan to fish? You know, where do you dream about and where do you see yourself using your equipment? Maybe it's just flies or maybe it's leader or whatever. Uh, and then, you know, they'll tell us and then we want to inspire them. Hey, that sounds great. You know, we'd love to support that. You know, that sounds like a great goal or great mission or man, that sounds like fun. Tell me more about it. Uh, you know, and we, we try to have an inspiring, you know, conversation with them. Let's talk, let's dream a little bit. That's okay. It's allowed. And then if essentially we're going to prescribe, you know, everything they need and nothing they don't at that point. Um, we're, our job is, is to be an outfitter and we're not doing the customers any favors. If we underdo it, we need to make sure that they're prepared to have a positive experience especially if somebody drove a really unique and remote location and chances are if somebody came all the way to Reds, they're probably looking to get outfitted to some degree or equipped. And uh, so the last thing we do is just try to prescribe, you know, what they need and nothing they don't. But um, I, I have witnessed this in many other, and I look at things like uh, when I audit what we're doing in our business, I go look at things like bicycle tours and scuba gear and ski gear and things and tennis and other and golf and other outdoor sports and how that they're marketing and giving a message. So I try to look outside of fly fishing. It seems like in fly fishing, we start talking immediately about like specific models and specific products. And we skip way past like the big picture as to where are you going to go? Where, wh how often do you think you're going to use this? Those are the most important questions involved in any equipment or activity prescription. You know, we need to know a little bit about the person. And uh, when I look at those other industries and try to audit it, a lot of times that's their message is are trying to meet people wherever they're at. And in fly fishing, I think that gets somewhat bypassed. Mm -hmm. You know, we're just trying to sell you whatever the, whatever well, the newest model rod and there's, is. And there's some people in the fly fishing community that uh, don't like new fly fishermen right <laughs> don't like newbies and, and they're invading on their on their hobby and their locations so and I never have felt that way at Reds those are the bad guys yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about uh, I know this you shouldn't do this on the podcast but I'm going to show you a video uh, and I'm going to have you critique a um, cast okay, okay. sure Will you, you want to do that yeah and I really want you to critique me on this cast. Uh oh, find it um, because this is probably the Ryan, most. Ryan, you're going to have to strap him to the chair. So far, this has been I the. I think this is going to be your daughter. <laughs> Spoiler alert! That's just a, just a wild guess. This has been the most fun I've had fly fishing, and it was in my driveway with an Orvis practice rod and my five and a half year old daughter. I knew it. And I, I should have had this queued up so the listeners can watch this, but I'll let you press play. So this All is right. uh, her first time casting a fly rod. And uh, I just gave her the rod and started doing little corrections, but I'm so nervous that it, anyway, <laughs> I'm so nervous that I'm going to uh, give her bad habits at five and a half years old that she's going to be mad at me when she's 18. Yeah. Because she can't get out of these bad habits with her cast. So here's what you got to do with her. And uh, I want you to take that. You got that same rod. Practice rod's great. And uh, you need to have her lay it down and not cast in the air like this. Okay. No false casting. Have her lay it down in front of her and then have her lay it down behind her on the ground. And make her, because what happens like in her cast is you can see the line's not tight. It's only tight like at the end of the forward cast. But when she goes back, there's a tremendous amount of slack. And there's only like three truths in fly casting. Maybe there's four. One is it, 
we can't function with any slack. The rod doesn't function whatsoever because line can only be pulled to speed and we can't pull it if it's slack. Okay, so no slack in the cast. Fly rods hate slack, that's the truth. The other one is the, the fly is also always gonna parallel the path of the rod tip. And so wherever the rod tip goes, the fly is gonna go. And uh, you, you really hounded on that yesterday too in your demonstration. Yeah. Like yeah. You, you said that over and over. It's, like your fly doesn't care. It's going to go wherever your rod tip is going. Exactly. And we can't argue, the professionals couldn't argue about that. I mean, that's just like a truth and a fact and, and, and a constant. And so like with her, I would just have her lay it on the ground behind her and, and look at it and go, yeah, it's tight. And then it's going to force her if there is slack in it, she's intuitively going to start slow and then accelerate. So she's going to draw the slack out slowly and then accelerate to get it to speed. And people don't intuitively do that when it's in the air because everything is happening in you know microseconds. But if she just lays it on the ground and sees that it's a little slack, she can start slow, draw it tight, and then build momentum. And uh, we have to build momentum. When, when we forward stroke or backstroke, there has to be a buildup of momentum. So the way you're gesturing, would you suggest having her stand sideways yes. and cast side to side yep. instead of, yeah. Yeah, sidearm is, you know, the only bad thing, like when I critique casting, um, the only risk of sidearm is that people begin to move in a very radial, the rod tip moves in a very radial motion, and that's a very bad thing. The rod tip should actually travel on a perfectly straight track back and forth. And when people cast from the side, they tend to go in a very radial motion, and that fly begins to parallel that radial motion and becomes very uncontrollable. We want to think about the cast in terms of much more like an arrow or a laser shot. You know, it's very straight, it's very level and it doesn't cast high in the air or way out to my side. Generally, when they go sidearm, they do that, but when people lay it on the ground, they can actually see where their back cast is and just have her lay it on the ground and lay it forward. The other thing that you gotta, gotta, gotta do is think about Tenkara fishing. Uh, I am totally into that on small streams. I'm a big fan of that. I think it's a very intuitive way to cast. People's control and just the, the intuitive nature of a cast, and to explain to anybody who's listening, Tenkara is basically you just have line tethered to the end of a you know a fiber or not fiberglass, but a carbon rod, carbon graphite, whatever you want to say. Uh, but you have line tethered to the end of that rod, and uh, you can have a short piece or a long piece. But I generally I fish a lot of small creeks with it, and uh, I will tell you I'm not. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and brag up a little bit here for just a second. <laughs> I got an 11 year old son. <laughs> that is a fishing fool that kid's line control and i haven't pushed him i haven't you know egged him on or anything but the the i could write an entire book about the process i'm taking my kids through with fishing because i am so stoked about where they're at they're fishing i don't push them i let them ask to go i started them with bluegills and bait okay so this is the this is the recipe for you dads or moms out there so we have a little pond in ellensburg called Mattoon, for anybody who lives around there. It's close to the grocery store. So, kids wanna go fishing, dad wanna go fishing, dad wanna go fishing, dad wanna go fishing. And I'm like, I fished all day, or I talked about fishing all day. I don't really wanna go fishing. So, what I do is, cause I'm kinda of burned out, you know? And uh, I'm like, okay, if you guys get all your stuff, throw it in the pickup, I gotta run to Fred Meyer anyway. I'll take you fishing, but you guys gotta get all your own gear. So they put all their own gear in the truck, self-responsibility, preparation, planning. You know, they get all their stuff organized, they go, get a couple worms, you know, if they're going to use bait or whatever. I'm not uptight. They can use bait or worms, whatever gets them fired up. And then we go down there, and I will help them just a little bit, but then I'll sit, 
and I'll return a couple of emails. I'll get kind of knock some work stuff out of the way that I need to. I'm not ignoring them. I'm giving them a leash. And then they get to make all their own decisions about where they fish in the lake. They just stock the shore, the dock that's out there. And then they start to go, oh, if I go a little deeper, I get more bites. And these bluegill are great. So my boys have like a, they have a whole uh, tournament scoring breakdown. Like a trout is four, you know, bass is three, <laughs> bluegills two, or bluegills one, crappies two. And uh, I'll take them there for 10 or 15 minutes, just max dose. Like, boom, they get there, they fish their brains out for 10, 15 minutes throw the stuff back in the car and drive home. And I would challenge most everybody. They probably have a lake like that that fishes like that June through August within minutes of their house. I mean, within 20, 30 minutes of their house. I mean, there's no excuse not to get kids doing that. And then we fly cast some and we fish almost exclusively small creeks uh, that have um, good uh, small trout populations that are very aggressive. So that when my kids do fly fish, we have some near guaranteed success, but we also fly fish for bluegills a lot. And I try to get my kids, I started them with some, some traditional rods, like little tiny three, three and two weights. I was throwing one of them in those seminars yesterday. And I'll throw one of them, a little Reddington butter stick, a little yellow fiberglass rod. I started my kids with those, and they constantly go to the reel. They constantly want to pull line. They constantly want to get the reel involved when it doesn't need to be involved. Um, most fly fishing is done with a pretty static length of line, and that Tenkara is so intuitive with the roll cast because they can see that if they want slack out of it, they can't pull, which is very distracting. They just draw the rod up, pull it tight, and then they can roll cast. They can cast, you know, overhead, very natural. And my kids with that Tenkara stuff have really began to excel. I took them to Yellowstone this last year, and uh, we fished the Gibbon River in the park, which if there's any families listening, that was like the best trip that we possibly could have had. We fished the Madison some, but... I took him to the Gibbon this year, man. My 11-year-old son and I just crush fish on the Gibbon. I mean, and independent, man. The kid's a shore stalker. He can cast. He can fish. He can read water. And a lot of it has to do with that, you know, sticking with bluegill, not forcing fly fishing on him, and getting him in that Tenkara game. Now, you can rig up Tenkara on a standard rod, but the best one I've found, if people really – and I use the rod myself. I mean, it's not just for my kids, but that Temple Fork Cutthroat, Tankara rod is the shortest, littlest, lightest rod, Tankara rod I've found. If there's a better one out there, put it in the comments on this podcast, and I'd love to know about it. But it's eight foot six, and it acts like a two or three weight, which eight foot six is wow. still pretty long. But they go research it um, on the Reds YouTube channel. They break down this small, so I can I ride horses too, and I can trail ride and tie it to the back of my kennel, and we can ride horses in the mountains, and I can get my Tankara rod out and fish. I can trail. I've tra- a lot of trail running. I've trail ran with it. I've hiked with it, and it breaks down tiny. It actually telescopes down, and it rigs up in a matter of seconds. And I don't have to have the bulk of a reel. I got a little, you know, a little spool of tippet and a few flies, and I can be like kind of bear grills fly fishing guy. Yeah. Uh, you can, you can go feed yourself if you had to. But the it's it's somewhat similar to those practice rods, but live action and uh, the way kids land them is really natural too. They just they don't worry about the reel or stripping line, which is very distracting. There's nothing worse. I've seen this. I've done it. It's ugly. Is a dad hollering at their kid when they finally the kids finally got the fish out of fly. The kids having this like amazing moment is the best moment of their life, and their dad's like no, no real strip or you're reeling backwards. And it's like, there's a lot of utter confusion. Whereas the Tenkara, boom, they just pin that fish and then they just go, they just reach out, grab the line and haul that little trout in or that bluegill or whatever it is. Uh, I can't say enough about my, my kid's progression in his casting. I mean, my 11 year old's double hauling. 
He's cast and great, and I think a lot of it, and I have not spent a lot of time with him. I've given him just these real conservative doses of it because I don't want to ruin him on it. I dream of us, you know, he may be running red someday, you know, so I, I don't want to ruin him on it, and I've been really careful, but that Tenkara is where I've by far seen the most progress. What about uh, using a Tenkara on a lake? Tenkara on lakes I'm not as big a fan of, but they do work. Like if I were going into a high mountain lake scenario, I love – and, um, maybe it's another podcast, but I'm an absolutely a- avid backcountry bivouac hunter. Um, you know, I hunt with my sleeping bag on my back and do lots of roaming around. And uh, there's a lot of high lakes. And uh, if I were going to start to incorporate Tenkara into some of my backcountry stuff, all you need to do is get a longer line and so that you can get out a little bit further. And the fight on it, you're just going to hook the fish like normal. You just reach out and grab the line and kind of feather them in, like hand line it. And nymphs all that kind of stuff with the Takara would be appropriate? Yeah, you know, Takara actually started, it's it's interesting, and I think it's going to come back around because people really are pursuing, it seems like to me, like purity right now. Like, people are kind of like in that, I want less stuff, I want better stuff, I want more useful stuff. And among millennials, camping and outdoors, the pursuit of outdoors is at an all-time high, according to some trade study I read the other day. Uh, but that simplicity of being able to just have a rod and go camping and go to a lake. And Tenkara started actually as a commercial fishing application because they wanted to be able to catch a lot of fish and do it fast. They didn't need to reel. They didn't need to complicate it. It was in the mountains of Japan. They need to be able to catch a lot of fish fast. And it's an extremely simple process, but it was all done with wet flies typically. And dry fly fishing is something we've kind of added to it naturally because we want to catch fish on dry flies. But uh, nymph fishing with a Tenkara, and I've got a video of you know, me doing that and swinging nymphs because that's a really, it's a long lost art actually. And it's really fun. If you were to read fly fishing from say the early, you know, part of the early half of the century, say 1950s, 60s on forward, uh, wet fly fishing, traditional wet fly fishing where fly fisherman's going to cast into the stream or the brook as it's often called uh, in like an old outdoor life. And uh, they would let that fly swing on tension and actually track across the river and you would get to feel the bite which is really exciting. Um, I grew up fishing a lot of spinners in rivers uh, around the Mount Rainier area where I grew up. And having a trout whack a lure is really exciting. I mean, that tug is the drug. And when you switch to fly fishing, you do definitely miss some of that with the exception of some streamer fishing. But having a fish pick up a swung nymph, you know, a nymph is a little um, aquatic insect, just for folks who aren't totally speaking fly. But you actually get to feel them bite, and it's really exciting. And Tenkara is very good for that, where you actually stalk downstream and you take and you roll and, and cast that fly across. Your fly sinks, and then it swims and drifts across river. The trout sees that fly swimming across and picks it up on tension, and you get an absolute direct connection with that fish. You feel all of its energy, life, and power, and really its spirit, like all in one tug. And it's a direct connection with no slack or no slop in the reel. And so it's like, bam, I mean, you feel the thing bite, and it's really addictive. Um, you know, as you get into, like, Tenkara, you'll see that there are some people like, ah, oh, it's the only way to fish. It's so pure, you know, and, and I'm definitely not one of those. But I really think it has an extremely practical application for, you know, beginners, kids, small stream, backcountry enthusiasts. It's just such a pure way to fish. Uh, I, and, and again, the one, the only one I've found is that ten, the Temple Fork Cutthroat is the only model I found that's really light enough to do what I like. But you can fish nymphs with that. In lakes, what a lot of guys are doing is 
they're taking, they're going to roll that out on a longer line, uh, maybe with a sinking, uh, sinking fly. I and mean, you can just use old pieces of regular five weight line. Um, those rods aren't real picky about what you use. That's the beauty of it is your fly line is just a chunk of recycled line. Yeah. Come into reds. I'll give you a bunch of it. Uh, <laughs> but you, you'll, they'll take and they'll actually lay the Tenkara rod out and then they just draw their rod up slowly up, 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 up. And, and that swims the fly in. And if it bites and they have leverage here, they'll set the hook. If not, they just grab the line and, and haul the and fish in really it. quickly as the fish is hooked. So uh, I love the idea for my five-year-old. So we're gonna, I'll get one of those. Where we fish a lot, just because it's local, is uh, Lake Merrill on Mount St. Helens. Oh, I've heard of that, Which yeah. is a high mountain lake. And uh, the reason I love it is uh, they have a, um, during the summer, they'll have a hexagenia night hatch. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, yeah, for those who don't know, it's about that flies about the size of a, a silver dollar and bright yellow. It's a whopper, man. Yeah, well, it's so much fun. Uh, and depending on on the hatch, I mean, you could be there could be thousands of flies in the air, and the bats are coming down, eating them, and the birds are flying all over, and fish are jumping everywhere. And then you'll hear if it's in the the uh, fall, you'll hear an elk rip off a bugle in the background. It's just a really cool time of summer or late summer in the evening. And you fish all the way through dark. Uh, and it's a 45-minute drive from our house, and it's beautiful. You're up on, on Mount St. Helens. So that's where we'll be spending most of my time with my daughter this uh, summer fishing. And she, she's been up there a few times. Uh, I mean, she was up there with one of those pink Barbie rods at two years old <laughs> uh, and catching fish. So. Yeah, I would say let her throw the Nicar rod. I mean, it is the growth you see in their casting is exponential. Good. Well, we're going to spend uh, uh, 10, 15 minutes uh, a couple times a week with that practice rod, and I'll get one of those 10 car rods. But I'm really looking forward to this this summer. And Ryan has a son that's a few years older, so it's cool seeing Ryan start to get in those things, hunting and fishing, the BB gun. And I got a girl, so I'm choosing fly fishing to get her into or see if she likes it. And she loved casting that little practice rod. Um, well, all and, right, so And my parents, they have a couple acres with uh, a spring-fed a spring pond. And we have bluegill in there. Uh, my dad put, uh, there's largemouth bass in there, and then my dad stocked it with some trout. Um, and so we'll go out there, put a worm on, and we used to just almost every other cast, just bluegill, bluegill, bluegill. Yeah. And those little suckers just fight, and it's so fun for the kids. Yeah, that is the best. It's funny because, like, I pick up, I used to read, uh, you know, my dad was a log scaler is what he did. And so... There was always, like, for those who don't know what log scalers, log trucks would often pull in, and my dad would, you know, classify grade, measure the logs, basically assess value, and log truck pulls out. And uh, so I'd go to work with them sometimes, and they always had these ancient outdoor life magazines. And he would bring them because they'd been sitting around the scale shack for, like, you know, 20 years. And I just remember, like, when I'd read those old outdoor lives, I remember a couple of real distinct things. is panfish were cool for fly fishermen back then. Like, they were, they were, like, a big part of what, you know, guys did. Like, oh, here's techniques to catch more bluegill on flies, you know, and you'd see little deer hair poppers and stuff. And, like, you don't see a lot of that anymore. I think our world has gotten so much smaller just with the connectivity of Internet. So instead of actually reading something that would be feasible to go do that weekend, now we've got people reading these articles about going and catching Golden Dorado, which is really market-driven, right? Like, outfitters like me, you know, I'm guilty. Mm-hmm want to drive interest towards these expensive, far and remote places that require, you know, a more expensive gear set and a bigger investment versus filling the pages with practical how-tos like, hey, let's catch some more bluegill or a tip for how to fillet your bluegill better because it's an awesome eating fish. 
Um, I should, I'll tell you about the bluegill beat down in just a second, okay. our annual family trip. But in outdoor life, the other thing is a well-rounded sportsman owned bait casters, spinning rods, fly rods, shotguns, and a deer rifle. I mean, fly fishing wasn't this exclusive thing where it's like, what do you do? Oh, I'm a fly fisherman. Well, mm-hmm. good for you. You know, like I fly fish too. You know, I do, I personally do everything. You go into my garage, man, I've got tree stands. I've got every sporting good you could imagine. I cross all sporting boundaries. Well, and people judge <laughs> so quickly. Like, yeah. I'll, I'll run into somebody and be talking to them and uh, going, oh, hey, I'm going salmon fishing this weekend. And, and would you like to come? Or, oh, you're gear fishing. Oh, no, I strictly fly fish. I'm like, well, you're missing out on a lot because I like <laughs> catching fish, right? Whether yeah. it's on gear or on a fly rod or whatever it is, uh, hand lining a tuna in on the ocean without even using a rod. I mean, I just like catching fish, like you said, the drugs in the tug. But people get really bent out of shape, some people, where they're strictly gear fishermen. Or we were having this conversation up at Rogers yesterday, and guys like, yeah, I don't fly fish, you know, I just gear fish. And I'm like, you're missing out on such good fishing yeah, opportunities. You can learn a lot, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm a pretty well-rounded sportsman. I do a little bit of everything, and I'm, I'm proud to be able to do it because I think my, my background of growing up, I fished uh, almost exclusively uh, extreme light tackle, finesse, largemouth bass. Like, I, I owned ultralight spinning rods, and I would fish. Dude, I could take a four-inch squirming lizard, and I could catch unweighted, always, neutral buoyancy, and I could catch, you know, great bass almost everywhere I went. And I think that background of growing up with a lot of bass fishing, you know, lightweight, light tackle bass fishing really plays into fly fishing. The two are actually extremely similar because they require so much touch and finesse. But I want to share the bluegill beat down with you. Yes. So uh, it was, uh, I want to say, I can't remember if it started over Father's Day or Mother's Day, but it was somewhere between Mother's Day and Father's Day. We were sitting around and we're trying to figure out, you know, we'd left, you know, kind of Sunday kind of open, but I do remember it was a Sunday. So it was Mother's Day or Father's Day. And we didn't really make any grand plans. Uh, usually for Mother's Day, we do a bunch of yard work. And usually for Father's Day, we could do something awesome, which my wife pointed out to me <laughs> two years ago. I'm like, God, I guess we do. Um, my Women love the nest, man. You yep. want to take care of the nest. You want to make them happy, take care of the yard, the house, and the property. But, uh, you know, we did church on Sunday morning. I tell you, unfortunately, any more, um, you know, definition of success, flexibility takes Sundays off. You know, most Sundays I can get off. I think that's really important as you, you have kids and, and you get a little bit older. But we're kind of him and on, like, what are we going to do today? And we're like, kids are like, Dad, we want to go catch some bluegill, and we want to keep all of them. Like, that was their one request. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, as I usually don't let the kids keep that many fish just because I'm like, man, I feel like I'm, I'm in fish all the time, right? Like... Yeah, <laughs> I'm not that pumped to keep them, but so I'm like, okay, let's do it. So we went and uh, we went to a lake out in uh, the Columbia Basin and Public Lake, and you know nothing real special about it. I just know that there's a lot of bluegill, and they happen to be schooled up at that time. But we just threw exclusively flies, dry flies, and uh, man, we had three or four rods going. I threw all the family of five is all in the boat. My skiff. I'm pretty sure I was over Coast Guard capacity for this thing, <laughs> at least on body count, but. Uh, we started catching bluegill. We kept 44 bluegill. We released Jeez. we released the smaller ones. You know, if they were smaller, I can't remember if it was like smaller than my hand or what what the barrier was. But there was a there was definitely a threshold. It had to be above. But we kept 44, and uh, and we cleaned all of those bluegill that day. And we had like it was the most fun that we'd had really doing much of anything outdoors. And my wife's catching these bluegill, and it was very meaningful because the kids are like, we need more of these things. Kids have an innate instinct to predate and harvest 
that's buried in all of our DNA, and you really see it come out in kids when it comes to fish because they hate letting them go. You could take the sweetest little girl that, that wouldn't hurt a, 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 you know, a hamster or a, a fly. She catches a fish. Can we keep it? We, First thing. We got to eat it tonight. We have to eat this thing. <laughs> yeah, they, they, you know, unbridled. I mean, kids have that buried in their DNA, like, you know, they, you know, hunt and harvest. So the kids are pretty stoked. My wife's catching bluegill, so we go home and we fillet all these bluegill. It's great. I got pretty good out of them by about number, you know, 40. And, <laughs> but, uh, you know, bluegill are great, great eating fish. Uh, you know, we just make like some kind of fish and chip thing with them, but um, gluten-free, of course. Uh, <laughs> makes it healthy. But so the bluegill beatdown is now a tradition of ours. So we go do the bluegill beatdown, um, catch a bunch of bluegill, do it all in one day. And it's amazing how much fun you can have just on those local warm water fisheries with kids. When you start keeping a few fish, especially smallmouth bass, the biologists that I know and work with have told me one thing regarding smallmouth bass. If you want better smallmouth bass fishing, bigger bass, keep smallmouth bass. Retain them. They, they reproduce and grow so fast that their, their size is thwarted by competition, typically. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, smallmouth are great eating fish, too. So you don't have to feel guilty about, uh, about keeping those. Um, I know we're getting close on time here, but uh, I just want to touch a little bit on some of the um, big trips that you guide. And because uh, I'm just getting to the point in my career, my fishing career, where I'm looking at, okay, I want to get beyond Mount St. Helens. And uh, we're going to uh, Maupin in August. Uh, we're going to do a little fishing and catch a Pearl Jam concert while we're there. And then uh, we're going to uh, Patagonia to fish Jurassic Lake in uh, uh, November. And we talked a little bit about this yesterday, but. Um, Talk about, uh, tell me a little bit about your enjoyment there. Is that something different gets you out of Yakima? And uh, uh, when did you decide to make that part of your business model? Yeah, well, if you would have told me when I was a teenager or in college that uh, I'd be getting on an airplane to go fly fishing, I would have thought you were crazy. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that was totally outside my wheelhouse or even my perception of what I might be doing someday. But as I've gotten a little bit older, and I've been guiding for almost 20 years now, um, I think it's like 19th season coming up, uh, you, you obviously I've gained a lot of knowledge and expertise, not just in um, sharing uh, stories and experiences with guests and other outfitters that help get me educated on the fisheries of the world. I hear lots of perspectives. A lot of people who are satisfied or satisfied with particular destinations. So you begin just to build some inherent knowledge without the travel, but you gain a real good grasp on what people enjoy about certain adventures. I mean, I've guided steelhead and bass and traveled the world and lots of trout fishing. Um, God, I've been a lot of different places now, but no, I wouldn't have thought that would be part of what I do. But now it's really a natural fit because you have all these relationships with customers that trust you. They know you personally and if they're going to write a significant check, jump on a plane, and travel to some faraway place in the world, uh, they, they want some type of filter or ambassador to endorse it and travel with them. Um, you know, at Reds, we focus and specialize almost exclusively on hosted trips, where we put together a group, and if you're traveling as a single angler or just two anglers, we build a community around that trip. You know, there's buildup and there's newsletters and there's open houses to where people can, if they live in the Northwest, they can meet each other. But I'm kind of that adhesive glue that kind of binds this group together so people feel a little bit like they know each other. And also, I've done a lot of research. I've fortunately got the time and resources 
in my job to be able to execute a really good trip, picking the right tides, the right time of year, the right guides, reputable outfitters, checking references. Uh, and usually I know of a destination for a couple of years before I actually book it. I start to pay attention to a particular lodge. You know, I have a, I have a bullshit filter for outfitters that is very acute. <laughs> I can tell when another outfitter is BSing me, uh, which is very valuable. And, and kind of back to the point of any outfitter can go start, you know, have a little website start up and make their business look incredible. Um, it's those real word of mouth experiences and that longevity that really validates a particular destination or outfitter. So, you know, our niche is really, you know, earning people's trust, picking out a particular destination, setting aside what we feel is a good week. We try to do this really well in advance. Most of our trips are all planned well over a year out uh, so that we get the right lodge and the right dates. And uh, we essentially, you know, our business relationship is a lodge in South America, for instance, or a lodge in Central America or, you know, Christmas Island or Ascension Bay, Mexico or Baja. Those lodges would have a tough time getting themselves to the expo center down here in Portland, right? I mean, that's international travel for marketing. They're just not going to do it. You meeting them in person is very unlikely. So we're the liaison. We've been there. We know those folks. We communicate with them. We handle wire transfers and all that kind of stuff that people don't want to have to think about when they're planning, uh, you know, fly fishing adventure. So we act as the liaison. Uh, you know, we get paid a small bit for, for our efforts because it is a lot of work coordinating a group of anywhere from eight to 15 people to fill. We try to fill the entire lodge when we do these trips so that it's all reds. And then we get to distribute guide assignments, which is really key because all lodges are going to have guides that are highly experienced to less experienced. It's yeah. just the nature of so guiding. So you can match them up. And we rotate so that, you know, you don't show up at a lodge and some attorney from New Jersey is taking the best and most experienced guide the entire week. And you being new to that lodge, you're with the, you know, the kid with no suntan, you know, who's never been outside a day in his life, yeah. you know, the new guy. Uh so with Reds, we take the whole lodge so that we can balance and distribute that guide talent evenly throughout the week and make sure that everybody gets an opportunity at different species or different guides when they're there. And, uh, and generally what we found with our experiences in contrasting them to say, um, you know, a couple of guys that book as a, as a two-person group and they go to a lodge and maybe they'll get great service and I certainly hope they do. But when Reds brings a big group, this has been planned for a long time in advance. That lodge has secured you know, full to experienced guides. That lodge has secured all those resources they need for the Reds group that's showing up because we're generally a pretty big customer at most of those lodges. And we don't plan to do things with lodges or resorts that we don't plan to be doing in five years. So when we engage with in a relationship with a lodge, our outlook is this isn't just the one trip that we're doing, but we're going to plan to bring groups back again and again and again and again and we work with well-seasoned lodges in, in order to build long-term relationships. So they want our business. They want it to go right. Uh, and, you know, they're really prepared for the Reds groups when they show up. And having a leader on the ground, whether, you know, whether one of our staff has actually been to that lodge or not isn't necessarily a guarantee. Um, but our host is going to be there, and they're going to be extremely well-versed on the ins and outs of that lodge. They're going to be a mentor for tackle, for knots for strategy and all those different things. They're going to be an experienced angler that's going to be able to mentor everybody in the group on some type of strategic discipline for that fishery so that you get to make the absolute most out of your trip. Well, uh, I'm super excited uh, for my trips, and I'm excited to hear more about, uh, uh, I think you're going to uh, Chile Yeah, I'm going. It's going to be my first trip to Patagonia, and I've been looking, I've been, I've been courting 
uh, this lodge uh, for about two years now, and I'm really excited. So my trip, you know, I heard all about Jurassic Lake, man, yesterday. It sounds amazing. I've been, that one's been on my radar. But uh, my dream of going to Chile is I really want to walk the Estancias uh, for, on small creeks and yeah. catch brown trout on dry flies in South America. That yeah. is like something since, since I first heard about it as a teenager, I've always wanted to do that. Well, it's going to be awesome, and I'm, I'm playing with fire here because we could get into uh, long discussions about this, uh, <laughs> which hopefully we'll do again sometime. But you got to get you to the Sportsman Show. Uh, thanks for coming on and uh, talking to some weirdo at the Sportsman Show and trusting, <laughs> trusting that you're not going to go into a place where you're going to get... Dude, I'm, I'm so glad to be here. This is awesome, yeah. Um, we're, uh, all of our social media is still the same. Yeah, um, thehuntforsuccesspodcast.com, uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram, uh, the website. Obviously, you can look us up on YouTube, the Hunt for Success podcast. Go check out uh, Red's Fly Shop. Try to meet Joe Roder. The lodge is incredible, and, too. Co- yeah, Co- incredible. Cody turned me on to the lodge. Phenomenal. Bring your family. It's amazing. Um, and get out there and fish. And it was, it's been really fun being able to talk about success and business practices and personal development around one of my favorite things, which is fishing. So. Cool. We'll do this again, guys. All right. Hey. See you next time. Thank you, guys.